Amen and amen. Thank you so very much. If you're a guest of ours, we are studying on uh, together the doctrines that define us, and we are walking through kind of a, the foundational principles of what we believe and why we believe it. And so we've studied God's Word, we've studied God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and so today we're going to study man. What does the Bible say about man? And it's quite interesting, that perhaps there is no uh, subject more widely debated all around the world today than the question of how man originated and why we are here. Uh, in, in other words, where do we come from and what is our purpose? Interestingly, if you know anything of, of philosophical history, the question of the origin of man was not debated for most of mankind's existence. And it wasn't until 1859 when Charles Darwin published a book titled On the Origin of the Species that we began to question the idea of creationism, the idea that an intelligent being, God, created man. Uh, and in that, he postulated a theory that billions of years ago, a single protein molecule acted upon by the energy from the sun evolved into a a living organism that evolved into a more complex living organism that evolved into a more complex living organism that eventually evolved into the most complex of living organisms, man. Now, interestingly, though, Charles Darwin did offer in his um, various writings that it was a theory that he could not prove, but that he hoped one day could be proven. Well, I stand here today in the year 2022 and tell you that his ideas remain a theory. They are still unproven, and I believe they will forever be unproven because they are not true. So, man, what does God's Word say about man? Look with me in your copy uh, of the bulletin on the back side. If you want to follow along and take notes, here's the first point. We are created by God. We are created by God. And I'm going to walk you through a number of verses of Scripture. They're going to be available for you on the screen in front of you uh, as we journey through this. And then we'll just kind of comment on them as a whole, all right? Genesis 1, verse 26. Then God said, okay, we're in the first chapter of Genesis. We're in the creation story. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to to our likeness. Then we jump over to Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, and then verses 21 and 22. God's Word says this, Then the Lord God formed the man out of the dust from the ground and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils, and the man became a living being. So the Lord God caused, verse 21, So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to come over the man, and he slept. God took one of his ribs and closed the flesh at that place. Then the Lord God made the rib he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. Psalm 119, verse 73. Your hands have made me and fashioned me. Give me understanding to learn your commandments. Psalm 139, verses 13 through 16. For it was you who created my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I will praise you because I've been remarkably and wondrously made. Your works are wondrous, and I know this very well. 
My bones were not hidden from you when I was made in secret, when I was formed in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw me when I was formless. All my days were written in your book and planned before a single one of them began. It's quite interesting. The language used in Scripture is very specific. And the words that we translate uh, make or formed or made or fashioned or created or knit, they all refer to the act of producing, to building, to fashioning, to preparing, to weaving in a deliberate manner. In other words, they don't vaguely, even vaguely, they don't allude to an accident or chance. They, they, they refer to something very deliberate and specific. It's quite interesting in Psalm 139, we looked at where the psalmist says, you knit me together in my mother's womb. That word knit was a, was a word that, that the, the readers, the listeners of this psalm would have been very familiar with, and some of you understand it as well. It carried with it the idea that you take various pieces of, of yarn or fabric and you knit them together into a beautiful tapestry. Individually, they, they, they alone, they're nothing very special. But when you bring them together and you knit them together, you weave them together, you have a beautiful tapestry or outfit or article of clothing. It's very deliberate. And the psalmist, using language we can understand, says that's exactly how God made us. He took all of these different pieces and functions and processes and he knit them all together into a beautiful tapestry. You see, the act of creating man was the result of the deliberate forethought, the deliberate planning of God. Listen very carefully to me. Genesis 1 makes it very clear that man is the crown of creation. All other facets of creation, uh, after all other facets of creation, the Bible records for us this. God saw that it was good. However, after creating man, the Bible says this, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good indeed. Listen, man is God's masterpiece, right? We talk about masterpiece works of art and literature and other things. Well, we are God's masterpiece. You are God's masterpiece. You are unique, and you are unlike any other. L listen to this. There will never be another one of you. You are one out of eight billion. <laughs> you are special. You are unique. Church, understand this. You are not the result of random chance or natural selection. You are the result of the creative majesty and genius of Almighty God. You are not an accident. You are the result of the deliberate planning of God. So, number one, we are created by God. But the, the Bible gets even more specific. We are created in the image and likeness of God. We are created in the image and likeness of God. Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27. We read the first half a moment ago. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. So, God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. All other living creation, if you study Genesis 1, all other living creation is said to be made according to their kind. Only man is said to be made according to the image and likeness of God. 
But what does that mean for us? What does it mean that we're created in the image and likeness of God? Well, it means that we are a reflection of God. Let me just share with you three ways this is true. Look with me in your notes. Number one, the image of God includes a rational aspect. A rational aspect. What do we mean by that? We are self-aware. We can comprehend our existence. We can have this conversation. No other living being can do that. We have self-determination. We can reason. We can think logically. We have the power of language and communication. The image of God, secondly, includes a moral aspect. We know right from wrong. We have a conscience with a moral compass. Man has a will and can weigh options and make choices. Third, the image of God includes a spiritual aspect. You and I can know God. We can discern spiritual truth. We can have a personal relationship with God. These truths are unique to mankind. Listen listen to me. No other living creature possesses a rational, moral, and spiritual nature. Only man. Only man does. Only man can think logically and reasonably. Only man can can communicate and, 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 and has the power of language. Think about this. You and I can write a letter, mail it halfway around the world, and they, the person that receives it knows what we're saying. No other living being can do that. No other living being has built bridges and tunnels and mined for precious elements and tall buildings and rocket ships and only man. Man is created in the image and likeness of God. Number three, we are created with authority and responsibility. We are created with authority and responsibility. Again, God gave us authority and responsibility that he did not give to any other, of li- any other living being. In Genesis 1, verses 26 through 28, let's read that together. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. And so God has given us authority over all of creation. Think about that. In Genesis 2, verse 15, here's, we, we, it goes even further. Listen to what God says. The Lord God took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden. Watch this. You ready? To work it and watch over it. And so God's given us his creation to work it and to watch over it. He's given it to us for our good. We are created in the image and likeness of God. And as the pinnacle of God's creation, we are given the authority to work and to use God's creation to meet our needs. But we also have the responsibility to watch over it. Genesis 2.15. To care for it, to properly manage it, not to abuse it. I I think in our world today, the the, the individuals who farm for a living understand this better than anybody else. How we are to care for and take care of God's creation. You see, we are managers, we are stewards of God's creation, and it's incumbent upon us to be, to, as stewards to be faithful 
over what God's given to us. Now, I, wanna, I want to make a note here. There is a very big difference between properly managing God's creation and worshiping God's creation. The latter should never be true. We, we don't worship the creation. We worship the creator. However, we should be good stewards of what God has given us. And so we are created with authority and responsibility. Number four, we are created with boundaries. We are created with boundaries. Listen carefully to Genesis 2, verses 8 and 9, and then verses 16 and 17. Read this with me. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he placed the man he had formed. The Lord God caused to grow out of the ground every tree pleasing in appearance and good for food, including the tree of life in the middle of the garden, as well as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Verse 16, And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for on the day you eat from it you will certainly die. Now think about this. Verses 8 and 9 tell us that God caused to grow out of the ground every tree pleasing in appearance and good for food. And of all these trees, we don't know how many of them there were, I often use the number 100. Let's imagine there were 100 different trees with 100 different fruits that God said, enjoy. But one of those trees, the knowledge of the tree of good and evil, God said, don't eat that fruit. The 99 are yours, but this one, avoid. Stay away from it. He gave man boundaries from day one. You see, man, we, we campaign for freedom and liberty, right? We, we campaign for the right to do our own thing, to blaze our own trails, to make our own decisions. How, how true have we seen that just this week in our culture? But here's something you and I need to understand True and absolute freedom has never existed, and it never will. It's never existed. You and I are not absolutely free to do anything. <laughs> if you don't believe me, go to downtown Atlanta, go to the top story of the tallest building and jump off and see what happens. You won't fly. I don't care how much you want to fly. I don't care if you identify as an eagle, as a vulture, as a dove, or as a pigeon. You won't fly. Because you're not free to fly. Tim Keller recently made a statement that speaks to this, and I want to just share with you this quote. He says, A fish absorbs oxygen from the water, not air. So it's free only if it is restricted to water. Now that sounds like a contradiction in terms, doesn't it? It's free only if it is restricted to water. He goes on to say, If a fish is quote-unquote freed from the river, and put on the grass, its freedom to move and live is destroyed. Real freedom is finding the right restrictions, the ones you were designed for, end quote. God has created, uh, created us with boundaries. And church, listen, those boundaries exist for our good. Those boundaries are designed to provide the most enjoyment and the most pleasure a temporal life can afford us. When we journey outside of those boundaries, that's when we experience hurt. That's when we experience pain and anger and frustration and disappointment and sorrow. But in those boundaries, we're free. 
Now, here's what's very interesting. Scripture calls the act of journeying outside of those boundaries God has given us sin. That's what Scripture calls it when we journey outside of those boundaries. And that is why sin hurts. That is why sin is painful. That is why sin causes frustration and disappointments and sorrow. Because we are outside the boundaries God's created us for. We are a fish trying to live on dry land. Now just hold on to that, that thought for just a moment. Going back to Tim Keller's quote, you see, in the water the fish is free to swim wherever it wants. Think about that. Eat whatever it wants, rest whenever it wants, go do whatever it wants to do. And the same is true for us. Inside the boundaries God's given us, we are free to live and enjoy life to its fullest. We're free. We're not absolutely free, but within those boundaries, we're free. So we are created with boundaries. Next, we are created for eternity. Ecclesiastes 3.11, if you've never studied the book of Ecclesiastes, I'd encourage you to do that. <laughs> Ecclesiastes 3.11, the Bible says, He has also put eternity in their hearts. God has placed an eternal longing or a sense of eternity in the hearts of humanity. You see, mankind operates in a different way than all other living beings. Only man has a sense of eternity. Only man possesses an innate knowledge that there's something more to life than what we're currently experiencing. See, we have a divinely implanted awareness that, that, that there's something more out there. We, we know in our hearts and souls that, there, that this isn't all that we, 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 we can look forward to, that it's all we are created for. <laughs> this is the root of human exploration. Think about this. Why did our European forefathers decide to get on a bunch of ships and cross the Atlantic Ocean in search of a new world? Why? Why weren't they content? Why weren't they happy where they were? Because there's a longing for something more. We know there's more out there. Why did we make a decision in the, in the, in the, in the 50s to explore space? Why can't we just admire it and enjoy it? Why do we have to go there? Why do we decide to put a man on the moon? Why do we send the Hubble telescope out to the far reaches of our galaxy? Why do we have a rover on Mars right now? Why? Because in our inner, in our being, we know there's something more out there. There's got to be more than this. And where did that longing for eternity, where did that longing for something more come from? It came from God who created us in his image and his likeness. We know there's more out there. And so we long for that. And then finally, we are created for God's glory. We are created for God's glory. Isaiah 43, 7, read this with me. Everyone who bears my name and is created, watch this, for my glory, God is speaking. I have formed them, indeed I have made them. There's the same language again. It's the deliberate act of God. In Colossians 1, 16, read this for me. Speaking of Christ, it says, For everything was created by him, by Christ, in heaven and on earth, 
the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him. Now watch this. What does it say? And for him. You and I are created for God's glory. We were created to bring glory and honor to God with and through our lives. That simple fact guarantees that our lives are significant, that our lives have meaning and purpose. It reminds us, it teaches us that we are important to God. Maybe you walk through these doors this morning and you don't feel that God cares about you or that you're important or that you matter to God. Listen, nothing could be further from the truth. You are important to God and he's created you for a great purpose and he's given your life great meaning. As a matter of fact, you are so important to God that he sent his one and only son from heaven to earth to make a way for us to live for his glory and for his honor. And this purpose, to fulfill this purpose that we are created for God's glory is accomplished in us when we come to know Christ as Savior and worship him as Lord. Let me just back up a little bit and let's kind of build on this. We were created for God's glory, okay? We were created to bring him glory and honor with our life. Unfortunately, there is a problem that, pre that prevents us from bringing him glory and honor. It is a problem that began in the Garden of Eden. Remember what, when, what God told Adam and Eve? You can have all the fruit of all the trees you want except this one. <laughs> well, which fruit did they eat? The one fruit they weren't supposed to eat, right? See, that problem that Adam and Eve created continues today, and it's the problem called sin. Look with me at a few verses of Scripture here. Romans 5 and verse 12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, that is Adam, and death through sin, in this way death spread to all people because all sinned. Romans 3.23, you're familiar with this verse. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 4. The God of this age, that is our adversary, the devil, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Philippians 3 verses 18 and 19. For I've, often, for I've often told you and now say again with tears, Paul is heartbroken over this truth, that many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their stomach, their glory is in their shame. And look at this, they are focused on earthly things. Sin keeps us from bringing glory and honor to God. It keeps us from fulfilling that great purpose for which we were created for. You say, well, pastor, I don't, I, don't, I don't see myself as a sinner. <laughs> well, the Apostle John says this in 1 John chapter 1, in verse 8. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. You're living a lie. You're living in deception if you don't believe that you are a sinner, that you, don't, that you believe that you haven't stepped out of the side of those boundaries that God's given us. For we all have. Every one of us. Fortunately, there is a solution to the problem the Bible calls sin. 
Look with me beginning in Colossians chapter 1, verse 27. God wanted to make known among the Gentiles the glorious wealth of this mystery. Watch this. Which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And so if we're going to understand and live for the glory of God, it's only that can be through Christ in us. 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 14. He called you to this through our gospel so that you might obtain, watch this, the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Or we could rightly say the glory of God even. And so here it is, you ready? The solution to the problem of sin that keeps us from glorifying God is faith in the person and finished work of Jesus Christ. Just real quick, let me remind you, Jesus Christ is God's one and only Son. Jesus Christ left heaven and came to this earth to die on a Roman cross to pay the penalty of your sin and my sin. Jesus Christ was buried in a real tomb. He was raised from the dead on the third day, and he is alive today. And only in Christ can our lives bring glory and honor to God, thus fulfilling the grand purpose of humanity. Now, earlier I mentioned the three specifics of what it means to be created in the image and likeness of God. There's a fourth specific that that I didn't include, and it is this, immortality. God is an immortal being. He is eternal. Likewise, man is an immortal being. Listen to me very carefully. We will live for all of eternity. Now one day, my body will lie in a casket, and hopefully there will be some there to celebrate my life. But you need to understand something. That is not the end for any of us. The Bible is very clear that all of humanity will live for all of eternity. Every individual will live for all of eternity. And the Bible says we will either live for all of eternity in a place called heaven with God or in a place called hell separated from God. And the only way to heaven is through faith in God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the door that allows us access to heaven. Let me just share with you a passage of Scripture where we see that very clearly. This whole idea that we will all live for eternity. In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus is speaking, and he's, he's, he's been sharing several parables with us. And so he comes to Matthew, uh, to verse 31 of Matthew chapter 25, and he shares with us the parable of the sheep and the goats. Let me, let me just read part of that to you this morning. In Matthew 25, beginning in verse 31, listen carefully. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, Then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations or all the peoples will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another, just as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, he'll say to the sheep, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And then we come to verse 41. Then he will say to those on the left, that is the goats, depart from me, you who are cursed, listen to this, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And then in verse 36, 
He says, and they, referring to the goats, will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now think about that. Eternal punishment. Hell is never ending in the same way that heaven is never ending. In Revelation chapter 20, Jesus said that, 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 that the devil and the false prophet and the Antichrist and those that follow them will be tormented day and night forever and ever in the lake of fire. Friends, we were created to live forever, and we will live forever, all of us. Adolf Hitler is alive today. Every human being that's ever lived is alive today. And we'll spend eternity in one of two places, heaven or hell, for that's what God created us for, for immortality. Now, where we spend eternity is dependent on what we do with Jesus Christ in this life. If you surrender in faith to him, your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life, and you will spend eternity in a place the Bible calls heaven with God. If you choose not to, you will endure eternal punishment in a place the Bible calls hell. Will you live for God's glory? Let's pray. Father God, I want to thank you for, again, the opportunity you've given us today to sing your praises and to study your word. And Father God, I want to thank you that you've created us. I want to thank you that you created us in your image and according to your likeness. I want to thank you that you created us with authority and responsibility. I want to thank you that you created us with boundaries that are for our good. I want to thank you that you created us for eternity. I want to thank you that you created us for your glory. And Father God, my humble prayer is very simple. I want every individual within the sound of my voice to live for your glory and for your honor. I want them to know Christ as their Savior. I want them to spend eternity in heaven with you. And so, Father God, if there is any individual in this room, regardless of age, regardless of stage of life, regardless of their socioeconomic background, regardless of their accomplishments and achievements, if there is any individual in this room who's never made a personal decision to follow Christ as Savior and Lord, Father God, right now, grab hold of them. Show them their sin and their need of the Savior and bring them to Jesus Christ right now, Lord. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, some of you are understanding right now, you're, you're under the conviction of God's Holy Spirit. And He is showing you and making very plain to you your sin and your need of a Savior. Would you respond in faith today? Pastor, how do I do that? What's involved in that? It's amazingly simple. Right where you're seated, cry out to Jesus. Say, Lord Jesus, here's my life. Take it. I believe you're God's son. I believe you're the savior of the world. I believe you died for my sin. I believe you were raised from the dead. Here's my life, Lord. Take it. I want to live for you and for your glory. I want to be a part of your family. I want to spend eternity with you. Here's my life, Lord. And friend, if you are sincere in that heart's desire, God has indeed saved you and rescued you from his wrath and brought you into his family, his forever family. Father God, thank you again for this day. Be glorified, magnified, and exalted in these final few minutes we have together. 
In the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen and amen.